0: This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Shiloh sends these uh, requests to come and teach six to eight weeks beforehand and wants to know what you're going to talk about. And so I, you know, I, I kind of like to talk about what's coming up in the moment, but um, I haven't been here in a while. And there are things that have happened in my life, and I'm sure there are things that have happened in yours. And so I realized uh, there's a talk that I've given both to my sangha and to the Vipassana group in Montera, uh, and it contains what's happened to me for the last year, and so I decided that uh, even though I've given it before, it's always new and different because I ad-lib a lot, and the title of this talk that I gave Shaila eight weeks ago is Wisdom, Skill, and virtue, and you're thinking, oh, (laughs) virtue? Right now, we could use a little virtue. Uh, But let me just say, first of all, um, I am no longer the librarian at Peninsula School. I got kicked up, and uh, it turned out that my head of school really needed some help, and the staff said, well, in that case, it's got to be someone from the inside, and so I am sort of the assistant director now, uh, a job which suits me very well because it's like having 60 new Zen students, <laughs> and if you have ever worked in administration, which I hadn't before, <laughs> being a librarian is a lot easier. However, um, it is really a wonderful position. I am the liaison between my staff and my head and the Learning Difference people that come to help us and the parents and, of course, the kids. And so I get to be running around school all day long, doing just about everything. I am the virtual woman of all work. And it requires tremendous organization, which is a good skill I have, And it also requires people skills, which I also think I have. And so uh, while I'm way too busy, uh, I'm loving every minute of it. But I am missing the library. So I support my librarian 100% because, as Jeff said, I believe it is the last bastion of democracy. Uh, You don't have to pay to take out a book. You only have to pay if you lose it. So... Anyway, a couple of things happened last year, and I can't quite remember the last time I was here, but my mother had a major stroke in January, and ever since, she has been paralyzed on her left side. So that has been a big part of my life, and not last weekend, but the weekend before, we kidnapped her from hospice. Uh, It turns out that once you're in hospice, you're not supposed to go anywhere, and it was her last request that she'd be able to go home one time. Because once she'd had the stroke, she was immediately put into rehab, and then she was taken out to Palm Desert, which is where my sister is, and put into a facility there. And all she wanted to do was go home, of course, which is what we all want to do. And for a while it wasn't really possible because her health was going downhill. I actually said goodbye to her in September. And then she rallied. And then in January, she got this terrible cold that started going into bronchitis. We all had to write a letter that said, we agree with our mother, please no antibiotics. And she recovered. <laughs> all this time, she is saying, I want to die. And in fact, at one point, she, um, after she realized that she was not going to recover, She was not going to regain the left side of her body. Uh, She basically started saying goodbye to everyone, including all the helpers at the facility, including all of us. You're not going to see me tomorrow because I'm going to die tonight. I'm praying to God, and God is going to take me tonight. So my sister showed up the next morning, and my mother was still very much alive. And she wrote us and said, well, God said no. And my mother has been wanting to die ever since because, like all of you and me, we are very used to being independent. We are used to being able to do for ourselves. Having somebody do the unmentionable things that need to be done when you can't do them for yourself is quite undignified. My mother is someone who never even was probably ever completely undressed in front of my father in their entire time together. And now she has male helpers taking care of those unmentionable things. So my very dignified, proud, stubborn mother, I get it naturally, has had to learn a whole new kind of way of being. Acceptance. We talk a lot about acceptance in Buddhism, but actually doing it, that's a completely other thing. And every time I'm with her, I am amazed. This This is a person that I would never have figured would get to this point of saying, well, I don't exactly have much choice, do I? Whoa. No, you actually don't, but how incredible that you're willing to embrace that. So as I say, two weekends ago, we kidnapped her from hospice and we took her to her home for one last visit. And while she was there, we were undoing her house. We were putting little stickers on the things that my siblings wanted. Some of them were taking a lot of furniture. I took four things. But we were also putting away a lifetime's worth of her collections. My mother collected fine things. Yadro sculptures, Waterford crystal, Lenox, China, you name it, she had it. And mostly, we don't want it. We all have our own stuff. And so much of my mother's life is being either sent to charity or put out for sale, you know, at some kind of like a garage sale kind of thing. And so while she was back in the bedroom holding court, which was delightful, all her friends came to see her because there's at least one friend who is completely deaf, so they can't talk on the phone, and they're so old that neither of them really knows how to do a computer, and my mother's only got one good hand anyway. So they hadn't spoken in a year. You know, lots of tears. They're the last, there's only three of them from their original group of friends that are still alive. At one point, I remember my mother saying, it just feels like everybody I know is dead. It does begin to feel that way, except that, of course, we know people are dying all the time. We just don't happen to know them. So at one point, I asked my mother when we took her back to bed because she kind of faded quickly, and I said, how are you doing with all of this? Because it's kind of weird. And she said, well, I, I promised your brother when he told me we didn't tell her until the saturday we were bringing her when he told me that he was bringing me he he said that he was only going to do it if i didn't object when it was time to go home on sunday and that i didn't make a big fuss so i'm trying to be very good (laughs) i thought because that was my big concern once you're home who wants to go back to a facility right it's no matter how nice they make it and believe me, it's a nice one and she has her own room and it's beautifully painted and it's not your home. So it has been an incredible lesson for me in non-attachment, which is a pretty fundamental Buddhist idea that attachment is what causes a lot of our suffering. So in the meantime of all of this, I probably did mention that I had a friend who was dying of melanoma cancer. And in May, my birthday often falls on Mother's Day. And when it does, my mother and I have always celebrated together because I was born on Mother's Day. It happened last year. So I was making a special trip down to the desert to be with my mother. And it happened that my friend was going downhill. Now, I had been with her on this journey for two years and had promised her that I would be with her at the end as her hospice person, I mean, besides official hospice. And we had been through it all, all the phone calls and the ups and the downs and the treatments, and it's pretty horrific what people go through. So it's getting, it's, it's getting to this point where I'm supposed to go down and be with my mother, but my friend is getting worse so I called and I asked her husband who answered the phone I said you know please talk to Sue and ask her I don't have to go my mother has already said she would understand because she knew what was going on and Sue said no tell Misha to go be with her mother so Sunday was Mother's Day and Sue died the next day when I was still there And it was hard for me, because I had promised her that I would be there. But when I heard about her dying from her husband, I realized she didn't need me. And that was a letting go for me, because we want to be needed, (laughs) right? We want to feel like we're helping. And what she was worried about the most was that her two daughters and her husband Would have a hard time letting her go at the end, particularly her daughters. And instead, what happened is what I've often seen happen you can't stand to see the person suffering anymore. And so on Mother's Day, the girls were there with their mother, said goodbye, gave her their blessing, wished her well. Her husband was with her all night long, and she died in the wee hours of the morning. And he said it was beautiful. She looked in his eyes. She told him she loved him, everything. And then she was gone. And so I realized she didn't need me. And it's okay. She did what she had to do. And we worked together. And, but she, each one of us has to do it ourselves at the end. So fast forward. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. In the same week, that was Monday. My teacher, Blanche Hartman, died on Friday. She also had been failing for quite a while. So it was just like this, oh my goodness, what more can happen, you know? But my teacher was old. She was 92. She was a wonderful woman. And she wanted to go to, and she was very ready. And she was just meditating her way into the, you know, the universe. So during the summer... There's the memorial for Blanche. Naturally, I have to go that very day to England with 21 children. So I don't get to go to the memorial of my dear teacher. And then I'm waiting to see when they're going to do the memorial for my friend, Sue. They finally decide it's the week before school is starting, and I have this new job, which means I'm responsible for everything that's happening at the beginning of school. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, but we have to go. So I knew that a lot of Sue's oldest friends were going to be there. She and her husband had been high school sweethearts. They'd gone to college. He went to Berkeley. She went to Stanford. <laughs> but they got back together. So they'd been with each other most of their adult life, Really? And it was a very romantic thing. But it also meant that they had friends that they'd had for 40-plus years. And so I had sort of thought, you know, I actually didn't come into her life really fully until she got this diagnosis. We had been next-door neighbors for years, and we liked each other, and I was very close with her younger daughter. And in fact, I married her older daughter. But it was her illness that really brought us together. If any of you, I mean, I know a lot of you have done this for your friends. It's a very intimate process. But as I was driving up, I was thinking, well, what could I possibly say at that memorial? I don't really want to talk about hospice, necessarily. And I don't feel qualified to talk about her in the way that her best friends would. I'm not going to be able to tell a funny story So I just had decided I probably wasn't going to say anything, but I wanted to be there. So we get up there, and there's an email from uh, one of my friends at work, at school. And you know how some people have a little saying on their email that comes with it? Well, hers did. And the moment I read it, I thought, Ah, that's Sue. It's a quote from David Starr Jordan, who was the president of Stanford University from 1891 to 1916. So this is an old quote. But there it was at the bottom of her email. It says, Wisdom is knowing what to do next. Skill is knowing how to do it. And virtue is doing it. I thought oh my goodness this is Sue this is what she's been doing for the last two years wisdom is knowing what to do next who knows what to do next you know right now we're in a complete state of uncertainty in this country everybody doesn't know what's coming next could be just about anything at the rate we're going wisdom is here's what's in front of you right now what are you going to do with it? And then you, you might know what you're supposed to do next, but skill is knowing how to do it. There are lots of ways to do things, and a lot of them are very unskillful. You can get angry. <laughs> you can get demanding. You can be dismissive. There's a lot of ways that you can go forward and they're all harmful, right? They're going to cause suffering. So skill, skillful means, we talk about this a lot in Buddhism, skillful means is knowing the how, how to do it, how to manifest that wisdom that knows what to do next. But here's the kicker, virtue. Virtue is doing it. How many times do we know the right thing to do And we don't do it. How many times do we realize that we've messed up and we don't know how to fix it and so therefore we just don't? (laughs) Virtue is a very old-fashioned word. And it's one that usually when we hear it we kind of go, ooh. So I looked it up. Because I thought, wow, I think I understand. You know, it's one of those big words that you think you understand and then you think, well, wait a minute. Maybe I don't really understand it. So you go to the dictionary. I love dictionaries. This is my librarian in me. <laughs> so you go to the dictionary. Virtue means general moral goodness. Right action and thinking. Uprightness. Rectitude, morality. Ooh, there's some other ones. Moral goodness. You know, there's this part of us that just goes, whoa, wait a minute, I am not in church. (laughs) Morality. And yet, there are three supports of our practice. Wisdom is prajna meditation is samadhi and virtue morality is shila it is part of the foundation the three legs of our practice this is why i said at the beginning you know the three legged stool is actually the most stable because even if one's a little shorter than the other it just means it's a little bit to one side whereas if you got the fourth one in there you're rocking around back and forth have you ever gone to a cafe where your table is doing that it makes me crazy You can, you know, you start to lean on the table and it begins to move, so you sit back again. A three-legged table never has that problem. So wisdom is the faculty of making the best use of knowledge and experience and understanding. And I say and, and, and. Knowledge is great, but it's only going to get you so far. You can know all the facts in the universe. It doesn't matter because you need to have an experience of them. Okay. And that's what meditation does for us. It gives us an experience of our mind. We can talk about the mind all we want to, but when you're sitting in meditation and you're actually watching what's coming up and thinking, oh my goodness, or could you just stop planning for a little bit? Or, whoa, where'd that thought come from? really interesting to watch right? so to have knowledge of your mind is not the same thing as having experience of it and then from that experience we develop our understanding right? so that's wisdom skill skillful means that's the ability to take that understanding and manifest it in our daily life that's tough if you think that's easy, you don't need to be here. Every day, with my 60 new Zen students, I get new chances to practice skillful means. And even when I think I'm being skillful, I find out later, oops, wasn't quite as skillful as I thought, because there's some harm that's been caused, however unintentional. But then there's this virtue. The thing that I loved was I did get up to say this. And I started out by saying, you know, I wasn't planning on saying anything at all, but I read this quote and I knew it was for Sue. And afterwards her husband came up to me and he said, you don't know this, but virtue is one of my favorite character uh, qualities. He's an English teacher at at a local high school. I was like, really? (laughs) I would never have guessed. (laughs) So for him, for me to talk about his wife as being a virtuous woman, oh boy, there's another one, (laughs) virtuous woman, uh, but when you understand what it really means, wouldn't it be nice if you could refer to all politicians as having general moral goodness? We should be able to expect that. I expect it of myself. But somehow, we've allowed that to sort of, oh well... uh. Uprightness. That is what our practice is. We are practicing uprightness. Standing upright. Standing up for what is right. Standing next to those who are not being stood up for because it is not right. That is virtue. But remember, virtue means doing it. You can't talk about virtue in the abstract. You, you can't be, Oh yes, I would like to be virtuous about that, but um, actually I don't have time. Or I'm afraid for my own safety. Or whatever it is. And those might all be true, and they are still no excuse. We have to do what's right. We have to do what is moral. Now more than ever. So the piece that was missing for me... I was talking about this, you know, um, Jeff mentioned that I'm also the guiding teacher for this group back in New York, although my student is so wonderful, she doesn't need a guiding teacher as far as I'm concerned. And they have this lovely group, and we talk on the phone every other week, uh, she and her partner, who is also one of my monks. And I was telling her about this, and I said, but the thing that's missing for me here is compassion and self-forgiveness and this is why you are going to fall short you are not going to be wise every time i am not going to be wise and i am definitely not always going to be skillful i'm going to try i'm really always making my best effort but we're human we are going to to do the wrong thing by accident even And then there are many reasons that we are not going to follow through. We're going to have every excuse in the book. And the most recent example, I I hope he wouldn't mind my younger brother. He's a total sweetheart. My cousin, who's a few years older than me, just got diagnosed this last six months with an incurable form of uh, lung cancer. She was not a smoker. She lived in Los Angeles most of her life, so that might have something to do with it. But it is a very uh, rare version, and she is a little overweight, and so she just thought she was losing her breath because of being overweight. Come to find out it had nothing to do with that. So we found this out uh, from my sister, who she first called. And then recently, as I say, we were all going to Los Angeles to be with my mother and take her home apart in Arcadia. I get this text from my brother because now we're going to see this cousin because I've made a big deal to her. I want to see you. I know you don't want to see us, but I'm sorry, you have to. (laughs) And my brother texts me and he says, I really feel terrible, but I haven't talked to Annette once since we got the news. I said, I don't know what to say. How many of us have been in that position? We don't know what to say. Partly because, you know what? There is nothing to say. There is only to be. You can only be with someone in a situation like that. You, you cannot say, oh, it's going to be all right. Because it's not. They're dying. I mean, we're all dying. But they know they've got a date on it now. Right? The rest of us, we sort of think it's off there in the distance when in fact we could be going out and be killed in a car crash tonight. But most of the time we don't think that way. So he wanted to know what he should do. I said, well, here's what I would do. I would send her a card and I would probably just say what you just said to me. I was so paralyzed by hearing the news, I just didn't know what to say. But I want you to know I've been thinking of you every day and I'm looking forward to seeing you and he wrote back he said oh my goodness that's so easy (laughs) so fast forward a few weeks we are in LA and we get there and we know we're going to see my cousin that Saturday when my mother is brought out and my little brother says to me so by the way I didn't send the card he said "And I feel terrible Virtue is doing it. (laughs) So I said, look, it's really, it's okay. You're going to see her tomorrow. And, you know, you're just going to have to tell her then. And so what ended up happening, though, it was Friday night. He and I are sitting there having something to eat in the hotel when my cousin calls me. And she wants to know what's happening the next day and when she should come. And I said, oh, and by the way, Michael's here. Hold on. Michael's looking at me going... (laughs) said, just say hello. And then it's wonderful. It's magic. You can hear by what he's saying, and he did say, you know, I'm so sorry that I haven't called, I haven't written. I was just paralyzed by the news. That she's on the other end, of course, trying to make him feel better, which is what happens when you're the ill one. It's just craze-making. But... They had a lovely conversation for five minutes and that broke the ice. And then the next day it was fine. He was fine with her. So this is the problem. It's not even going to be that you don't want to do the right thing. It's that you're going to feel incapable of it. You're going to feel like you don't know how to do it. Because heaven forbid we don't know how to do something. This is the hardest thing I have with kids at my school, but it turns out adults suffer from it just as much. The idea that you need to know how to do something before you do it the first time. Where did we get this idea that we're supposed to know how to do everything? Wisdom is both knowledge and experience. You can't be expected to know how to do something before you do it. But we do... We expect it of ourselves and through the ether we pass it on to our children. And so there are a lot of kids who are afraid to try anything new because they might make a mistake. This is a real problem for us. Our practice is one of mistake. Suzuki Roshi once said it is just one mistake after another. Perfect Give yourself permission. It's okay. You're going to screw up. It's part of being who we are because we learn from that. Think to yourself, the hardest times in your life, you learned something. When life is just going along wonderfully and everything is easy, we get very complacent. We forget to be grateful. We forget to be compassionate because our life is so easy until it's not. Until your mother has a major stroke and you have to figure out what to do. Until, you know, your best friend is dying of melanoma and you have to figure out what you can do to help, which is basically nada. So the only thing that I could do with Sue, I think I may have mentioned this, every week I did two things. Every Monday, I sent her a card. It was a card that I had made. And usually it would be, I would cut out some word, like I would cut out the word miracles. And I would make a beautiful card using that word, and then on the other side, it would just be one line of miracles do happen. That would be it. It was not a long, newsy letter. I did that once a week, and then two or three days later, I would send an email with a photograph of something that I had done that week or seen that week, whether it was just a pile of beautiful fall leaves or it was a picture of my dog or whatever it was. So twice a week, she could count on hearing from me. And it sounds like nothing, I know. It was nothing. I mean, it's not a big deal to send a card once a week. But it meant something to Sue. She told me two or three times, She said, you know, when I get really low, when I I just get so depressed because I know there's, there's no hope here, there's just delay, I go to my stack of cards and I just start going through them one by one. And by the time I'm done, I can breathe again she said it's just an amazing thing it's just partly knowing that you cared enough to send it and partly just the little bits of wisdom on each page it just reminds me to take a deep breath and be here in this moment so I just came back from this visit with my mother and I have to say the fact that you know I can pick up a glass with my left hand that I can walk out the door tonight on my own speed that I can get in my car and drive, that I can walk my dog. This is a miracle. (sighs) Miracles happen in every moment, and we are just unaware because we're so busy that we're not paying attention. So, wisdom and skill and virtue... These are the things by which we live our life. But we have to remember compassion and forgiveness because we're not going to get it right. We're going to even know sometimes when we're not getting it right. We're going to be in the middle of a conversation when we know it's not going well. And we're going to be feeling like, but that's not what I meant. And it doesn't mean anything because that's what the person is taking in. And so you know harm is being done and then you have to figure out what to do about that. So in this practice we are trying to penetrate the heart. Buddhism sometimes doesn't talk much about the heart because, at least in, in Japanese, heart-mind is one character, shin, because there's something there that, you know, the, the heart is this beating biological thing and the mind is this bunch of chemicals and synapses and electrical firings Consciousness is something else entirely. And consciousness, we call it heart mind together. So our practice requires three things determination and courage, honest self reflection, and a willingness to trust in the three treasures. determination allows us to work very hard because of our innate desire to wake up and stop causing harm. That is what makes me get up every morning to sit in meditation. That is why even at the end of a very long day I wanted to come and talk to you. Just to remind us all of the importance of us doing this practice. Because it may not seem like very much You may think, oh, well, you know, I'm nobody special. My name is not going to be in the papers, in the headlines. I am not going to be receiving the Presidential Citizenship Award. Uh, You know, I am not going to be a famous movie star. I am not... We're not the famous ones. It's okay. I just recently had a chance to uh, re-watch the PBS version of... um, a uh, masterpiece theater version of my f- one of my favorite novels, Middlemarch. And there's a character in there named Dorothea Brooks. And at the very end, Judy Dench's voice is the voiceover, and she is saying the last paragraph. And I wanted to share it with you because you may not think you're doing anything important. She did not believe she was doing anything important. She was born into wealth she was always trying to take care of the poor people around her and coming up with ideas for because she was landed gentry and there were all of these tenants, poor tenant farmers. and She always wanted to do good in the world. She wanted to be a helpmeet and she kept making wrong choices in those people. Eventually, the good thing happens. But at the end, George Eliot writes of Dorothea, Her full nature spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth but the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. You may not think that what you are doing makes a difference. I tell you it does. It makes a difference in you first. It makes a difference with anyone who lives with you. It makes a difference with the people you work with. It is incalculably diffusive And so you do not see the results of it immediately. But it is, even if it's an unhistoric act, it does not go so ill with others because this is what you're doing. So we are determined to practice and we must have the courage to hang in there with it because frankly, most of the time it doesn't seem like much is happening. (laughs) It is. And we have to have faith in that. And then you all know about honest self-reflection. This is what we're doing in meditation, and by honest self-reflection, what I mean is I'm watching this stuff come up, and even when I go "Ooh," I don't turn away from it. I think, "Oh boy, that's an area I could be working on right It's not enough to reflect you have to you have to be willing to see the stuff that's not so pretty about yourself and then there comes that's that's the wisdom, and then skillful means is. Okay, what am I going to do about that? And virtue is doing it. And when I said we need trust and devotion in the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, we are taking refuge in the Buddha as an enlightened being. As a friend of mine who just got back from Burma and Cambodia said, it isn't the Buddha who's in all of the... It's all these other... This pantheon of gods that existed long before Buddha. Buddha sort of down here, you know, is one of the little statues, but up above are all these other guys, the Gat, the, the Nats, something. And and I realized, this is true of all religions. Jesus was also a human being, but then there was God, right? And in Islam, there was Allah, but then there became, you know, Muhammad the human aspect entered in, but the God was already there. And so, Buddha is like us. This, I have to say that when I first came to Buddhist practice after growing up a Catholic, the thing I loved the best about it was that Buddha was just a guy like me. You know, I, I was like, oh my goodness, he's, he was just a real person and he had this great understanding Whoa, that's okay. I like that. Maybe, because if if he's human, maybe I can have that level of understanding too. That is a very encouraging thought. And then there's uh, the Dharma, which are these incredible teachings of the Buddha. And the one and only completely important one is, you know, the Buddha even says, I teach one thing and one thing only, the end of suffering how can you end suffering if you don't know yourself? How can you end suffering if you don't understand what skillful means are? And how can you end suffering if you're not willing to do what needs to be done? And then finally, I'm preaching to the choir, sangha. Sangha You could all be sitting at home tonight. You could, right? And you do, right? But you're here. And that is because when we're sitting together, something fundamentally different happens. I know this for a fact because my group sits at my house. I have a a, a meditation hall in my house. I go in there, you know, pretty much every day, and I sit by myself. That's one thing. But when the whole group is sitting in there, whoa, the feeling is completely different. Now, sitting alone is a very nice thing, but sitting in a group with other people who have the same understanding, that is very powerful. That is Dorothea Brooks going out into the world thinking she's not making any difference and yet changing the lives of everyone she meets. That's what we're doing. It starts here. And then it goes out. So blessings on all of you. May you take your practice into the world every day as you are. Thank you.